and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Welcome to the Monsters Madness and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, joined by my co-host, Angelique. Say hello, Angelique. Hello, I'm here. And today we're joined by a very special guest, actor, director, producer, musician, Mr. Courtney Gaines. Courtney, how the hell you doing? Good, man. Sounds like I do a lot of stuff, man. That made me sound real good. Yeah, you're a busy man. <laughs> Let's get started at the beginning. Take us back in time, Courtney. When you were a kid, what sort of films, music, books, comics were you into that got your juices? Oh, good question. So not really into comic books much. So we'll just get that one right out of the way. Movies-wise, you know, I grew up on 70s films, right? So I grew up on films that didn't have good ending. Probably a movie that a lot of people wouldn't know, Robert Blake, Electric Glide in Blue. Do you remember? Do you ever hear that I'm movie? not familiar with that one. So yeah. Robert Blake plays this guy who's a cop, and then he becomes a plainclothes cop, and then he gets busted back down to regular motorcycle cop again. And the movie starts with him pulling over this VW bus on the middle of the highway in Vegas, and he lets them go, but you know something's not right, and he pulls them over again at the end and they blow him away with a shotgun and he blows off the back of this motorcycle and ends up in the middle of the highway looking like what happened and he's dead and the credits just roll that kind of stuff was what blew my mind when i was when i was coming up i would say the biggest impact of anybody or as one of my heroes was was bruce lee the first movie i saw was fist of fury I, there was this little movie theater in my neighborhood where they would let you go into r-rated movies underage and so i saw movies like you know fist of fury but i also saw movies like exorcist which really still to this day was by far the scariest thing i'd ever seen there was no there was no special effects like that when that movie came out that movie just like blew my head open. <laughs> you know? I had nightmares. I, I couldn't sleep. You know, but movies like Jaws. I mean, stuff, you know, in the 70s, it was just, it was just, you know, different. It wasn't until like the 80s or sort of Star Wars, which is a big deal. And I remember that, but it's sort of like, then things started going like Spielberg and everything started having happy endings. You know, I, right. I like, now I know what that genre is. Ultimate it's film noir. You know, I like when nobody survives and makes it out. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> what was the name of that Robert Blake movie again? Electric Glide and Blue. Okay, I'm writing that down so I can watch it later. So obviously you're a musician. When did you first pick up instruments? I started playing guitar the same time I started taking acting lessons, which was about 13 years old. And yeah, the music influences was was wide. You know, my mom was was listening to show tunes and you know pop music. My dad was listening to jazz. My brother was the one introducing me to the the rock. You know, the Sabbath and the Doors right. and all that. I also lived in a Chicano neighborhood where oldies were king you know what i mean like that's what the, that's what the homies listen to and i think that that era the songwriting the craftsmanship is just excellent and i think that that had is you know much of influence uh, as anything and one of my favorite all-time songs you know, is Aaron Neville, Tell It Like It Is. You know, tell it like it is. <laughs> that thing gets me right in the heart, man. You know, his voice, 
gives me chills. Obviously, you play guitar. Did you start singing as well back then? Yeah, it was. You know, my intention is it was to be a professional actor, and I was clear about that at a very young age. And so, and I was in a professional workshop, and I had a mentor named Virgil Fry. He really got me going in that direction. Became my manager. No one really was there for me on that level musically. I just wanted to learn to play guitar, and then once I learned to play, I started writing. That's been the the thing for me. I just I the joy of writing a song is is, is as good as it gets for me creatively. It's a very it's a buzz. I don't know how else to describe it. It's like when the when so an idea starts coming through you or a lyric starts coming through you or a melody starts coming through you, you have to go get it down before you lose it. Right. <laughs> you know, like it ha- you have this window of time to get this concept, this idea down. I love it. I love it. I love writing. That's, that's my joy. What does your writing process look like? You start with a riff? It, no, it, it really varies. Sometimes it's a lyrical idea. Sometimes it's just uh, start writing something that triggers. Sometimes you're just playing guitar, practicing, and some you know riff comes, you know, an idea comes. It and then I've done a lot of co-writing too. My my first uh, well, actually my second band, a band called The Gathering, was an acoustic band doing the whole coffee house scene at the end of the 80s when metal was still got you know king in los angeles we were doing this whole different vibe i started writing with this uh, girl named shane o'neill we were in an acting class together the first song we wrote she was 13 i was 16 we can just write like it's like butter you know what i mean mm-hmm. she'll come up with a melody i start writing a song she comes up i start writing a song she starts writing a lyric you know it's like it, it, it it's effortless and the same thing kind of happened with the band i'm in now ripple street with uh, Stephen lee adams the bass player he approached me hearing some some other things i had done and i just like let's try it and and you can either write with somebody you can't i can't put my finger on why it's it's just chemistry and writing with him is very different being a bass player you know he writes these you know staccato licks and you got to kind of get your lyrics in there kind of dumb them down whereas when you write on a guitar you're bob dylan and you try to squeeze as many lyrics as you can in right it's (laughs) like the strummy thing right Mm -hmm. so it, it it forced me to write in a different way and i like that i like when you can collaborate with somebody and it brings out different things it's fun. Well said. On the acting side of things, early on, were you, were you doing a lot of theater when you were taking these classes? Not a ton. I mean, in high school and all of that, but it was all like musical theater, right? And I didn't really have my voice developed that well, and I just would get so nervous. I mean, I did I did the musicals, but I didn't get any of the good roles because I was like just terrified to, to sing. You know, it was <laughs> scary. And what would happen is I get the I get like a recording role and then we'd be rehearsing and the guys would look at me like, dude, you can sing. What you know? I mean, oh, oh yeah, I guess. But I was I was doing anything I could do, but I was really the professional workshop is where I was really getting my chops. And what was unique about the class was first off, Virgil was a working actor, so you had that perspective. But second off, he had a class with adults and kids, teenagers in the same class, which just isn't done. I, I guess people don't figure they want to deal with teenagers or, or what, but for me, it was great. And, and uh, I, I like, I always was someone who was, I could get along with my, my, you know, the older, the older people. And I obviously you could learn from them, not only from their successes, but from their mistakes, right. you know? You can, you, you know, my acting coach made many, many, he was a four-time Golden Glove champion. He was a tough dude, freaked a lot of people out on sets. You know, he had a famous moment. He did a movie with Yafit Koto. You know, Yafit Koto is a scary looking dude. Yafit Koto is the director. He yelled at him. My mentor got so mad. He said he bet him an amount of money he wanted. He'd take him up on the top of the hill and break every bone in his body. And that got out of town that Yafit Koto backed down to him. <laughs> he was a made man. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 you know, you learn from the mistakes too. Not that I would have shown this off a code i can tell you that right now <laughs> just like just hang on let me go get my acting teacher real quick <laughs> yeah exactly but he was he was a bad dude but he also sometimes let that get the better of him you know on sets and so i learned i learned a lot but the, but but the adults with children to me was a great thing because what who do you have your most conflicts with coming up as a teenager your the authority figures your parents exactly. your teachers the cops so we were able to do scenes and improvs where we could have a, that that dynamic and it was great so i guess what made you, it's not common for a kid, I would say it's not necessarily uncommon, but I wouldn't say it's common for a kid to pursue acting as a career. What made you want to take that route so early on in your life? Well, my suspicion is it was partially because it was in the blood, right? So my grandfather, who I never knew on my father's side, was a hoofer, a piano player, and did bit parts in movies. I never met him, but one day my grandmother was like, there's your there's your grandfather, and he's in a Shirley Temple movie, which I wish I knew what movie it was. I've looked for it and never found it. I was like 10, I can barely remember 
remember it, but I, I remember it was like toward the end of the movie. And it was like a Civil War thing or something. He was in a wheelchair talking to Shirley Temple. I mean, how cool is that, right? right. So there was that. And then my mom was in the USO in an entertaining troops in like World War II and had her own dance studio by the time she was 18 and then gave that all up for her first marriage. So it was kind of like incomplete business, you know, incomplete blood on both sides. And, and in no way did my mom encourage me or push me in that direction. She didn't want me to be a child actor. She somehow felt she lost some of her childhood. Through. I couldn't understand it because she chose it all. It was nobody had her, pushed her into it. So I couldn't understand it. So I kept bugging her, kept bugging her. And finally, she got me in a workshop when I was 13. I hated it because it was like her style, like tap dancing. And, you know, it was like not what I meant. And I was going to quit. And that's when this guy, Virgil Fry, literally found me on the street. His son was on a commercial audition next door. He's like, I like your son's look. Is he an actor? I teach a class. When his son came out, I recognized his son. His son is named Sean Fry. And in the 70s, he worked a lot. He was in the original film with Dick and Jane. He did a lot of, I remember him doing Movie of the Week, so Elizabeth Montgomery. And I was like, this guy must know what he's doing. His kid's working. And so I joined that class. And that class was method and gritty. And it was everything I'd been looking for. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Was Children of the Corn your very first professional gig? You are correct. It's not my first, first, first thing I did called commercial. It's an AFI film, but it was my first feature film and the first thing anybody really saw. Absolutely. So Linda Francis, the casting director, had seen me in a showcase back in the 80s. Showcases became a thing. They still occur, but it's not quite the same. Uh, somebody, somebody's got to pay for them or pay to get the casting directors there. And it's like that kind of taints everything. So they would be these showcases where you'd run a theater, a bunch of actors would get together and, and put scenes up and invite casting directors and directors and feed them and give them wine and then if they liked you they take a picture you know and mm -hmm. linda francis came to a showcase and she liked she she became the first person in the industry you know that was a gatekeeper that could make a difference who believed in me and uh, i auditioned for her for a few things one was a film i'd got where i was going to play the, the quarterback and the, the bad guy quarterback in a project in that movie tanked i don't know what happened but it went away and then so she was the one who brought me in for children of the corn and, and she definitely was the one who championed me to the producer and the director to you know to go with the go with this guy you know so did you have much experience with horror as a kid going into children of the corn i wasn't a huge horror fan i certainly like i said i'd seen some horror films yeah. certainly like i said the one that that still this day you know though it's an obvious one for horror fans but the exorcist man you know freaked me out i i, I now know um eileen who eileen deets who did all the stuff that the other act the other girl couldn't do because she was underage you know all the gnarly stuff the throwing yeah. up and the cross and all that I, eileen as a matter of fact she's the one who got me with my manager chris Rowe management who were, were both with originally started just doing conventions with him and now he's developed a really good manager roster acting man, roster as well so thank you to eileen d so ironically i i know you know i know somebody from that movie now who scared the crap out of me and i'm usually <laughs> the one who hears that me about yeah. me <laughs> yeah yeah that's funny because me and angelique were just talking you know of course we're talking about children of the corn today and you mentioned a, a lot of kids their problems growing up are with authority figures and right. we're Children of the Corn didn't scare me as a kid because I was like, hey, I'm a kid. They're not going to come slit my throat. You know, there I'm you cool. go. This is all the adults problem. Yeah, you're right. And I think the reason that movie, you know, like rock and roll resonates every generation is because, of course, there's that rebellion, that teenage rebellion is, that never goes away. You know, as long as there's people being born, there's always going to be American teenage rebellion. And they're always going to find that movie just like they're going to find Led Zeppelin. You know? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. <that's> cool. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Children of the Corn is that kind of hard rock and roll themed horror movie. And I agree. I, it's become one of the classics, obviously, you're aware, and it's a, your first role, a Stephen King adaption. So in hindsight, are there things that you notice looking back on the set, maybe that kind of hints towards the success that the movie would have? No, I mean, we knew, you know, Stephen King was, you know, we knew he was, you know, a successful writer. This was only a short story. It was made by, you know, a pretty independent company. All I was trying to do was prove I could act, you know what I mean? Like prove it to myself and prove it to the world because I had been studying a long time and I was serious about it. So for me, it was my moment of truth. You know, I think me and John Franklin both that hey you know we, we got some chops here and we can do this there's no horror was not mainstream like it is now it just wasn't it was considered B movies critics didn't give it any love they didn't give me any love so I didn't know but it, but what happened was as soon as it came out it was the reaction to people on the streets was mm -hmm. just you know crazy and kids would go running to their parents crying and things and stuff I just was not ready for I realized the power of cinema I realized, you know, what you put out there, you know, you, you can have a great impact on people, good or bad. I took that seriously from that point on. I realized the cinema is a very powerful medium. It, it really can influence people.
Right. And I think the reason, one another reason that that movie connects with people like myself, folks my age, is that kids are the stars, you know, even the bad guys are kids. So those things yes. really strike home with you. That's true. It was, you know, it was teenage cinema, you know, in the mm -hmm. 80s was, 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 a, was blowing up. And I just happened to be, you know, the right age at the right time because they needed 18 year olds who could work full days that look 15. And John was even older than 18, if you can believe that. Yeah. That blows my mind. I just learned that recently that he was like 25, 26. And I'm just like, what the? I'm not sure. But I don't know. It was 20 something. I know that. Yeah. <laughs> There's a creepy chemistry between you guys. Did you guys work together a lot offset? No, no. It was just by the callback. I had to do two auditions. He, he got cast by the callback. So it, it had come down to me and like two or two other guys, I guess. And I just remember grabbing him by his lapels and pretty much picking him up off the, you know, off of his feet and shaking the crap out of him. And he said, yeah, dude, you were by far the most terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> we're just uh, linked together. It's just, you know, I'd probably, uh, you always say you're going to keep in touch with people just because of uh, conventions and everything else. We're, we're linked together through history. You know, we're, right. we're always going to reunite and find each other. And it's because we, and it was because we had the same experience and that it was our first film. You know, we have that too. Not just that film, not just two guys who, you know, we're like, we're ranked in like the top 10 scariest kids of all time. He might be ranked number one, you know, you know, we just have these, these, this parallel thing with this project that we just couldn't hide from if we wanted to. I did a movie called uh, Killing Grounds years later that he was in that I got to kill him. I got to get, I got to get payback, you know. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch that one. I have not seen that one. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was like a straight to, you know, video film, but I got to say it's one of the best bad guys they ever played. And me and Anthony Michael Hall played the bad guys. The plot line is uh, this gold bullion, you know, plane crashes in the middle of the, you know, the mountains and these people who are like on a tour find it and they try to get it out but it's ours and we find them it's definitely film noir and it has got some that interesting people in it priscilla barnes charles rocket who's no longer among some really good people and it's a really good bad guy it's just not a film a lot of people know but i play a, a pretty crazy dude in that one well that you're really good at that i'm gonna have to give it a watch <laughs> yeah it's pretty fun it's not the perfect movie but there's some good performances what was it like doing the burbs that was an interesting experience number one there was a writer strike on so there was only us and fletch two on the entire universal lot and i was too young to really realize how fortunate I was to have a job because I had been working steady at that point and I just didn't really I just didn't really get like oh people are out of work you know and they have families to feed I was I was just too young to appreciate that but what was the challenge was every you know this character is supposed to be a stranger from a strange land everywhere I look there's people in my childhood that I look up to you know, you know I look I you know I remember Tom Hanks from Bosom Buddies you know and even his guest star on uh, Happy Days you know mm -hmm. a really great guest star as a matter of fact but my god we have princess leia we have <laughs> you, know, you know it's like everywhere you look you know, and i'm a huge bruce dern fan and there's bruce dern so it was like i had to really shake that off and to do my job you know i don't know these people <laughs> and joe Dante was great just a really nice guy and easy to work for and you know it was a really good experience you're speaking about like some of the people you've worked with over years and if we just go back to children of the corn obviously children of the corn came out just before terminator before linda hamilton did terminator and T2. So what's it like for you seeing that? what she's become knowing oh, that yeah. you guys were yeah, children I mean, yeah. she, she was she was a sweetheart uh, when we did corn and she's still a sweetheart to this day she's a, i just can't say how nice she is it's always great to see her when we get to see her every once in a while in conventions and things we it's always a nice little family reunion because she's just she's just lovely when you put the list together if you really you know for me it's all of us did one job at a time you know but that's led to a hundred jobs over 30 years but if you put the list of some of the people I worked with, some of the people who I worked with before they were huge or whatever, it's pretty crazy. It's a mm -hmm. pretty crazy list of some really accomplished actors. And jumping ahead right now, if we just talk about Queen Bees that just came out. I only had a cameo in that, but I got to work with Ellen Bernstein, Anne Margaret, Jane Curtin, and Loretta Devine in a scene. I mean, you know, still I'm working with people that are just like icons, you know, and it's always great when you get to work. The worst is when you get to work with somebody you really admire and they're a jerk. That's the worst because yeah. I never want to see them in a movie again, you know, but that certainly was not the case on Queen Bees. They were all all really sweet and all really great at what they do and had a good time. I would hope that incidents like that are few and far between. They are, but they do happen. 
and people do have egos and uh, a lot, a lot, I find it's mainly insecurity and it's in every department. If a director of photography is insecure, he can be a pain in the butt. You know, it's like the ones that are usually accomplished are the ones that are not throwing their weight around. It's usually people that are insecure that are throwing their weight around, but it does happen. And it just, it just kills the creative flow. You know, they, they, mm. they start trying to take your good lines from you or uh, it's all about them. It usually comes down to them trying to look good. They don't like the scene has been set up to create tension where they may not look good and they seem to want to get rid of all of that then why am i here you know like why are why are we in this scene together you know why did you uh, take this job <laughs> yeah you get to i mean the, the, it's, it's the whole point is to create tension one way or another even in comedy it's, it, there's tension you know so if you're taking that out you're taking the obstacles away i mean i also taught acting for a lot of years and it was all about teaching people to make the bloodiest choice they can make you, you when you decide what you want in the scene the more life or death that is the better it is you know what i mean the more you're going to be working with the more urgency you have the more you're going to be reacting and you'll be amazed how many times I, I, I was amazed how many times actors I would train would pick wussy ass choices because it's like they didn't want to feel anything. And I'm like, if you don't want to feel anything, you're in the wrong profession. You know, unless you can be Mr. Cool action hero, dude, you know, you're in the wrong profession because the rest of us, you got to You got to feel something. You just mentioned that you were an acting teacher. What is what do you teach your students day one when they walk into your class? What's the first lesson you're driving home? You know, this is my church and I'll screw around with it. <laughs> I teach number one. I expect you to show up and do your best. I don't care if your best is 10 times worse than somebody else in the class, but I want your best because that's how we're going to get somewhere, right? So, but I was, the, the guy that trained me again, Virgil Fry, he, tra he, he trained me to be an acting coach as well. He, I st he started, we did these weekend intensives all over the country and I would go as kind of the guinea pig to do these exercises. These were intense, like psychodrama, drama therapy, stuff, bringing up your past, all this stuff. So he would have me as the guinea pig to like set the tone, but it was also me sitting there watching him teach. And, and working with these actors. And before I knew it, there was two women in that class, uh, Gail Abbott and Judy O'Neill, who became our agents for a period of time. And then they broke off and both became managers. And then they both started having me teach up in Oregon and San Francisco and bringing uh, some talent down. And some of these people, you know, broke. Lysia Silverstone was one of our students. Josh Lucas up in Oregon was one of our students. And it was really about, you know, teaching them commitment, being really committed to what you're doing, and then working on this emotional stuff so that actors had range. Because mm -hmm. that's a lot of times what lacks people. They, they, like simple, simple thing, like say like, you have to cry in a scene and you're a man, but you were taught at a young age from your father, men don't cry. So you start stuffing that emotion. So when you start to feel that in a scene, you're going to stuff it. So we got to do work to open those channels back up so you can actually get to the places you want to get. And the acting has to become bigger than your considerations because uh, nobody wants to freaking cry, right? Nobody wants to right. show pain. Nobody wants to be vulnerable. The acting has to become something that you're, it's worth it to you to go through that. And But then it ends up being good for you as a human being too. So you get yeah. stuff off your chest. So you're an acting coach and sort of a psychiatrist at the same time. Very, very much so. It, 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 psycho, that's why I use the word psychodrama, drama therapy, because it mm -hmm. is therapeutic. But it, yeah, so it's good for you, but it's also really good for your work. Like one of the things we would do is we'd have them do a scene and the beginning and then work with them for the whole weekend and really opening themselves up and then do the scene again at the end. And it would just be night and day because all of a sudden they're reacting and they're feeling and they're going all these places that they just didn't have access to, you know, 72 hours before. Hello kitties. Welcome to dads from the crypt. <laughs> Hello boys and ghouls. Welcome to dads from the crypt. A weekly podcast for three dads who love horror movies, review the Tales from the Crypt TV series and movies. My name is Jason. I'll be joined by fellow dads Jody and Mondo. Join us as we dive into the plot, talent, and source comics of the iconic HBO series. There will also be music recommendations, trivia, and dad advice. Look for the Dads from the Crypt podcast on your favorite podcast app starting on Father's Day. And follow us on our Facebook group, Twitter at Crypt Dads and Instagram at Dads from the Crypt. Follow Dads from the Crypt or I will follow you to the grave. <laughs> That's really cool. 
That's fantastic. You're sprinkled across many iconic films of the 80s outside of The Birds, Children of the Corn, Can't Buy Me Love. Back to the Future. What was it like on the set of Back to the Future? Well, the story I always tell is that, you know, I was lucky enough, and I say this because I'm speaking financially here, that I was there before Eric Stoltz got, got let go. So when they did the reshoot and they were they were scrambling to do all that. I was supposed to maybe work like three days or something. They forgot about me. So I got paid for five weeks on one of the most <laughs> successful trilogies of all time. So those are still some of the best residual checks that I get. And I always say many times back, a back to the future residual check saved my butt and paid my bills, you know? So that's, that's the, that's the best <laughs> part of it for me. Chris McGlover and I, the first thing I ever did was an AFI film that I always forget the name of, but you can find it. Called, there's a thing called the Beaver trilogies. They did this same project three times. Sean Penn played it once. Chris McGlover played it once. He still says it's the best thing he's ever done. And I tell this story because it's crazy. So the first thing I ever do is supposed to be me and some guys smoking cigarettes in the boys' room. Director's just like, go. We're going. And then the bathroom door opens and it's Chris McGlover dressed in the black outfit of Olivia Newton-John from Greece. <laughs> you can imagine that. And I'm like, what am I seeing? But then I'm also watching this guy. I'm like, this guy is incredible. Who's this guy? You know, and we became friendly. And so it was really great. It's always great when you go on a set and you actually know somebody already. And all of my scenes are with him. And so kicking him in the ass and all those things, I felt comfortable because I knew we could work together. Crispin Glover is one of the great quote unquote weird actors of our time. You know, he just oh, has his own it, thing. You know, if you just, you know, from a point of view of just acting, right? Like the, what they call subtext, the, the mind, the things that are going on in your mind, you can see them coming across your eyes. I don't know anybody that does it better than Crispin Glover. I mean, it's just, he's so quirky, but you see all this stuff going on. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't have to do anything. It's, it's just happening. Uh, I'm a big fan. And, you know, we got a chance to work together on a mini series a few years back now called Texas Rising, which I would have never pictured Crispin in a Western, but he was great. He was the perfect role for him in that Western and it was a mini series and it was great to get to work with him again and, uh, you know, catch up with him again. And Have you seen him in Willard? I haven't, but I, I, I imagine he's got to be terrific because it's a perfect role for him. So I, but I haven't seen it. I love that movie. That's a great Crispin Glover movie. Give that one a watch. Yeah, he, but you know, even when he played Andy Warhol, when I heard he got Andy Warhol, I'm like, come on, man, who better? I, I, right. you know, I would have picked Crispin Glover for Andy Warhol too. <laughs> Courtney, you've done a lot of TV as well as film. So does your approach differ as an actor if you're going into TV as opposed to film? Well, it, it differs in that TV moves really fast. So you 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 get you get some sides. You have you know less than 24 hours to prepare coming and do your cold reading. And if you're lucky enough to get it, then you maybe have a week at best to then show up on set. And then you're shooting an hour or 44 minutes technically without commercials in six days. Mm -hmm. So it's like big guns, no chance for experimenting or playing around. Just get her done, you know. Mm -hmm. Whereas on a film, you know, you might get it and then have a month to prepare. You can have more rehearsal time when you get on set, you know, a little more experimentation. Television doesn't have room for that. They bring in like walk here, walk here. And if you basically say your lines without stumbling, they're moving on. So you learn that you have to be good on your first two takes because I'm not the lead in the show. They'll give those guys six takes, but I'm just a guest star. They're not giving me a lot of shots at it. So I better come bring in thunder right away. What would you say are some of your personal favorite TV spots you've done over the years? You got a lot. Yeah. I've, I've had some of the best roles I've ever done have been guest stars on TV. Two or three that come to mind are a diagnosis murder. I played a character who was paralyzed on one side and pretending to have cerebral palsy on the other. And I had a week to prepare that. That wow. was pretty intense. And that was before the you know, the internet where you could go on and look at stuff. So it was like, it, to pull that off was uh, pretty amazing to me. And I got to yell at Dick Van Dyke, so he can't beat that. <laughs> I would say the My Name is Earl I did, called I Sold a Guy Lemon Car, was a great role. One of the best roles I've done because I got to start out, I got to basically do everything I do. The character starts out nerdy and ends up bitter and edgy and dark. So all kind of my, you know, all my whole range was in, in one little guest star. And, and I loved that show. And I auditioned for that show for four years and I ended up getting the best audition in the best roles so that I auditioned for on there. So it turned out to be a really good thing. Plus my son loved that show and I was able to bring him on set and meet the guys. He was in high school at the time and that was great. And then I'd say the last really challenging, super challenging role I did on TV was A Criminal Minds that came out a few years ago where I play, you think I'm the unsub, but, but I'm not, I'm protecting somebody. But this character was like complicated. He was like homeless, but he had PTSD. He was having flashbacks. He was, he, 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 he was doing, his mind was, was in a lot of places and he had to, it was very difficult. 
but it was a great challenge and I was really, really proud of the work. I don't know how much you can tell us about this because I asked, we had John Kassir on recently and I asked him the same thing, but full circle, you worked on Tales from the Crypt in the early 90s and now you've got a movie come in post-production called Hellblazers and the yeah. cast on that is ridiculous. So yeah. what can you tell us about that movie? You got Billy Zane, Adrian Barbeau, Tony Todd, yourself, John Kassir. It's a bunch of horror legends in there. Yeah, it's all horror, great horror people in it. Um, I've worked for the director, Justin Lee, a few times now, and he'd been trying to get me and Bruce Dern back together, you know, for a Burbs reunion, which was great for me because I just, Bruce was really good to me on that set and really took me under his wing and really gave me a lot of confidence as an actor, and I appreciated it, but I never really got a chance to thank him. So it was great to get on that set and tell him how much, you know, him appreciate, you know, him recognizing my work meant to me and uh, so that was really the highlight of the whole thing for me i was only on it for a few days it's i, I don't know i mean i could just try to describe the film but i don't even know how to describe the film it's a it's a horror film i can tell you that much and there's sort of this cult involved in trying to take over this small town i can tell you that much and now that i'm older you know i'm in the small town now i'm not i'm not in the cult <laughs> anymore I was like, I see why you're involved now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they, yeah, there's some really, really good people in it. So I have, I do have high hopes for it. I haven't heard boo about it. Justin tends to do that. I'll, I'll hear from him. I'll work. And then like, I, 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 like the guy goes in the editing room and disappears for a year. So <laughs> I have no idea what's going on with it. Okay, cool. I have high hopes for it with all those names attached. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, like I said, I have high hopes for it. I mean, you've got a lot of good people. I mean, you know, can't go wrong with good actors, right? That'll always help. I'm uh, looking at your bio here, Courtney. It says that you worked on, as a musician and once performed live on stage with Fish. So how yeah. did that happen? Yep, that's a story. Here we go. <laughs> so it starts with me hitchhiking across the country right before Count By Me Live came out because a friend of mine got married in Canada and I was hitchhiking to Detroit to see a girl. Oh. And on the second day... This guy named Mike Gordon, the bass player from Fish, picked me up, took me to Burlington, Vermont, found me a place to stay that night, and was talking about this band. I got this band. We're playing in this little club called Nectars, and you know, but I'm like, okay, cool, man. Good luck with that. Next, thing, he, but he kept in touch with me. Next thing you know, he's in L.A. They're opening for Santana at the Greek. The next thing you know, they're headlining the Greek. And the next thing you know, they just blow up and become Fish. So that's the relationship side of it. So they had this guy that was a prankster that was always pranking them that they wanted to get back, and he was definitely afraid of malachi so i tried to keep coming up with these these ideas but none of them were like any good or convenient so I, I kept passing and they finally came up with a really good one and it was it was they were doing a gig in vegas and so they so they, so they threw this party in their penthouse and then they got this guy high on mushrooms and they took him out gambling when he came back it was a dark room with children of the corn playing and the four guys in the band were watching it with him and then one by one they peeled off trey being the last because trey is a redhead i was waiting in the master bedroom i put on his jacket and i come and sit down and next to the guy oh that's great they were hoping for like him to scream which he didn't but he looked terrified right thought he was probably just having a bad trip then he's like oh hey and he gets up he slowly walks out of the room and they're like was he scared i said dude he was petrified and then when we went to talk to him he literally could not utter a syllable for 45 minutes <laughs> and that's when they realized they had done the ultimate prank and when he finally was coherent enough to tell them he said he had never been more scared in his life so huge success so now i'm in with the band anyway you know like i'm like i'm in their good graces at this point and then they were like what do you want i said well let me come on and play a song with you guys and so larry and les from primus came out too so i didn't play guitar i just came out and played some percussion but i got to play a gig in vegas with the boys in front of eight thousand people so not something i'll soon forget that's one of the best stories i've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> yeah. did the, when the basis for fish picked you up did he know who you were when you were hitchhiking i don't think he i don't think he did he said the reason he picked me up was i had it was it was kind of getting towards sunset and i i didn't know everyone where i was i was probably like i was not in a good place to if i didn't get a ride at that point but i grabbed this, i got an ice cream cone and this girl was standing next to me. this little girl had gotten a cone and he said the reason he pulled over with the hitchhiker he thought the little girl needed a ride <laughs> that's why i got the ride so well, he wouldn't he wasn't gonna stop for me so you know this was a meant to be thing and we're still you know we still talk to this day which is is uh, kind of crazy was there a moment where he just kind of glanced at she's like you're fucking malachi i don't remember <laughs> i don't remember it may have happened at some point but um i just remember how cool he was he literally found me a place to stay that night and it was just like he couldn't have been nicer he, he really is a nice guy and a very creative individual and he's also a filmmaker you know he's the only one out of the 
the group that does anything with, with movies. He, he was the one who egged them on to do, uh, I think, the Hoist record, which they did in L.A. Finally talked to him to doing a video because they didn't want to do it. He got the label to let him direct, and I was able to give him one really good piece of advice, which was because the suits were going to be hovering over him. You know, they didn't know, can this guy direct me? He said, look, you're going to have to make a thousand decisions as a director a day, literally a thousand decisions. I said, just make them. You're not going to, they're not all going to be right. But if they see you going, how, you know, red suit, blue suit, red, you know, camera where? <laughs> over there. They'll, they'll back off, you know? And he, he said, man, that was the best advice anybody could have ever given me. Because within an hour, the suits were like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. And he, he got to direct his music video. You just fake him out with your conviction. Well, it, it's true, though. As a director, you, you have to make, I mean, if you have, literally, if you have to make 1,000 decisions a day, are you going to make them all right? Nah. No, but you're the guy, you're the girl, whoever's at the helm, everyone's looking to you. And if you don't make the decisions, then you start to create a void in the, in the production and other people start trying to make those decisions that are, that's not their job. And it's a horrible thing. When that starts happening on set, that's when a set starts unraveling. So in terms of things like that happening, what would you say was your most challenging job in terms of just things popping up, I guess? Oh, I don't know, but it happens a lot. The thing is, is you, you can see what's going down on set, you know, pretty quick, like what kind of set it's going to be. It doesn't take long. What I do, if it's not going well, is I just walk off <laughs> until they figure it out because I'm just going to eventually get pissed off and I don't want to be chiming in like that. So I just, you know, I was like, I step off and I'm like, you know, call me when y'all get it together. That's a good approach. Good approach. Yeah. Tell us about Ripple Street, Courtney. What was the catalyst for that? And what do you guys have going on? So, uh, yeah, so Ripple Street's my band. I have a solo project out right now, too, called Acoustic Games Volume 1. It's all acoustic stuff. And the third song, Let It Ride, just came out. And it just got picked up in a, a little indie movie I did called My Redneck Neighbor. And I always say, guess who was the redneck neighbor? But uh, that's cool. That's going to be in a movie. I love that. I love when a song gets picked up. So that's, uh, but so the band, Stephen Lee Adams, the bass player, found me. He heard, he heard a, a solo record. I did a song called Journeyman that Matt Sorum produced from Guns and, and got Slash to play lead on, if you can believe all that. And that was just because I was dating a girl that was best friends with the girl he was dating. And I went up to his house one day and she was like, hey, my, my boyfriend can sing. And he, he put me on the spot. He said, here's a guitar, do something. I was like, oh man, play it for Matt Sorum. I'm like, I don't know. But he liked my voice and he's like, you want to do something? Let's do it. And I was just like, I ain't going to say no to that. That was an amazing experience getting a see slash play lead was like i don't know how to describe it it's like it looks like nothing's going on but everything's going on mm -hmm. right you a know, master like a master <laughs> yeah. exactly and uh so steven had heard that song approached me and if and we, like i said we started writing and we started doing gigs around la but i, I was all about like look man i've done gigs I, you know gigs are all right but really i'm interested in writing a record and i just gone through a breakup so our first record is just a straight up breakup angry record <laughs> it was it was therapy every step of the way it was therapy and uh but that's i've always used music as a, as a form of therapy same thing with acting classes too though you know there are places you can get what's on your chest off in a, in a way that's creative and you know i i wish everyone had those outlets because i think it would stop people from going postal to be honest yeah yeah but so yeah so the band so we put out our first record and then recently we brought in a new guy frankie bogus on some guitars and they've been doing uh, we've been doing some co-writing he also does engineering and mixing so it's like he's been a great resource and so we put out uh, three singles this year and the last one's called would you and you know every time you put an epk out on stuff you got to kind of like say what does this sound like to sell it you know so to speak and i i, I feel comfortable saying it's got you know shades of black sabbath in it you know, I, I feel very comfortable with that critique and uh, it's a bit of, it's a bit of a dark tune and um, I like it. It's fun. I like I like you having an acoustic thing mellow on one side and then a heavy rock song on the other, you know, just, right. like, just like the acting, have some range. Right. So if it sounds good on acoustic or it sounds good on a piano, you know, you've written a good song. Right. And from there you can build. So I've written most of my most of my material I've written on acoustic guitar and, and I, I hang my, you know, that's where I hang my hat as a, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm okay singer. I'm an okay guitar player, but I think I can write a pretty good song. That's, that's where I hang my hat. I've listened to Slab City and I really enjoyed it. It had, it has a bit of a grungy vibe to me when I listened to it. Very much so. That was the first single we put out this year. Our first record people, uh, one of my friends is, is I actually, this, I'll talk about this project for a second after this, but he, he calls it cruise grunge. So it's like, you know, kind of driving in your car grunge. So I think nineties grunge is kind of where we, 
we fit in slab city definitely has that feel and there's a video on that if you want to see it too i have a nice big covid beard for that sucker so that's the one i saw yeah check it out so but uh the guy that gave us that just i know i can tell you're a rocker and a metal guy i have a my my, was my hunch yeah Uh, i got this other project to talk about this really cool this guy named mike dallager wrote this metal rock opera based on hp lovecraft's dreams of the witch house oh shit and I play I play uh, one of the characters in it, and I the, the last thing they put out I actually brought John Franklin in too, and he sings, and he comes from musical theater in Chicago. He slayed it. Well, you 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 could find it. The musicians that this guy has on this stuff is just insane. Like he's got Bruce Cooler play with Kiss. He's he plays with Grand Funk now. Yeah, some people consider him the best metal guitar guitar player out there in Europe and stuff. He's considered like a god. And that guy can shred shred, dude. I mean, like mind building shredding doug blair from wasp and i mean like some like really great players on this stuff and it's an incredible record he put out a double record and now he's been putting out singles using horror and metal people to like create some hype and he's trying to make a fil- get a film done at this point but yeah it's it's unique i don't know anything out there like it uh, so if you like want to hear some metal rock opera ish type of uh, thing i highly recommend it say the project's name one more time Dreams of the Witch House, or Dreams in the Witch House, I guess is the, like I said, it's based off the H.P. Lovecraft story. Awesome. That is definitely up my alley. Going to check that out. To date, what would you say is the best acting advice that you've received? The best acting advice I ever received was from uh, Mark Griffith, the director of Hard Bodies, but I also did another movie with him in the Philippines, and we were supposed to do more. It's a long story how... I was supposed to do hard bodies too. It's a long story, but we actually worked with the guy five times, but we worked <laughs> twice. But when I started getting a little too big for my britches, and I was like, why do I have to audition anymore, man? I'm in a bunch of stuff. He told me a story. I'm not going to tell you who the actress was, but he told me a story about this actress who was very famous, but hadn't worked in a while, walked into this audition. And the guy, the director didn't know who she was. And she had this big purse. And he said, okay, you ready to are you ready to do the scene? And she pulls out an Oscar and slams it on the desk. And he's like, oh, I see. You've won an Oscar. That's pretty impressive. Okay, you ready to do your scene? She reaches into her purse and brings out another Oscar and slams it on the desk. <laughs> she refused to read. And he told me the moral of the story is she didn't get the job. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And I'll tell you, that got my head clear, you know? And I was like, yeah. you got to, you, you know, you got to suit up and show up and you got to be willing to show them you can do it, you know? And if, you, if you're not, if you're not going to be a yes, it's, I don't care if you have two Oscars, you may not get the job. So that's, that's the a, best advice. Yeah, that's a cautionary tale there for anybody with Oscars <laughs> yes. out there. Now, when you go to cons or when you go outside to the grocery store, are you bombarded with people screaming Outlander at you? It's happened. It's happened a lot <laughs> over the years. Are uh, in cars running, you know, walking down the street, but certainly a conventions it depends on the person it could definitely be outlander or if it's a burbs person you know it came with the frame or sardine you know the, the whole convention and every time i walk past I get, sardine i'm like shut up man like, <laughs> like three times is enough you know i'm not working now i'm just in the hotel can we can we take, take a break right. <laughs> you know? but yeah you know but people are just excited you know what yeah. i mean it's, it's nice to know that i have quotes out there that people actually want me to sign on pictures I don't take the convention thing for granted, man. It's like, I always, the ones that are there that aren't happy, I'm like, then don't be here, man. Because here's the job description. If this was a, was a job description in a freaking newspaper, it'd say, you're going to sit at a table. People will come from miles around, happy to meet you, and then pay you money to sign your name on something. I mean, yeah. is there an easier or better job that you've ever heard as a job description? I haven't. No, sir. Can't say that I have. I don't. I, and I, and I, you know, people are so excited to meet people, and if they're a curmudgeon, it just bums them out. They come to my table and like, oh yeah, I was just at so and so's table. He, he was, you know, he didn't even seem like he wanted to be there when he, I paid the, you know, forty dollars to have him sign, and he spelled my name wrong. You know, it's like. <laughs> yeah, <you know? laughs> It's like, yeah, that sucks. I feel for you. You know, I would be bummed out too. I mean, to give you guys a break, coming from a fan perspective of it, some fans don't have the etiquette. You know, if the guy's on the elevator and he's just signed uh, autographs for eight hours, let him go to his room. Let him take a nap, you know. That's true too. That's true too. When we're out of our table, you know, let us shut it off and let us, we're we're hungry and we just want to get to our room. But yeah, but some, some don't, some they can't help it. They're just too excited. Yeah. So have you seen any good films during this whole lockdown? Ooh, um, not really. My, my girlfriend and I watch a lot of like old films, you know, we watch a lot of TMZ, TM, you know, Turner movie classics. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, so nothing new I can really say. As far as horror, I mean, nothing new, but like Get Out was amazing. <laughs> I was like, greatest horror film I've seen in a long time, in my opinion. I still haven't seen it. Oh, dude. Yeah, I want to tell you, that you should watch it. And then the other one, which uh, I had a movie called Candy Corn that I helped produce, came up through Epic. I, what the heck is that name of that movie uh, where the, uh, Art the Clown? You know, what, what am I talking about? Terrifier. Terrifier is, that was really good. I was shocked at how good it was. I thought the, and the director was an auteur, film, auteur filmmaker. He did the special effects, you know, I mean, those, those, some of the special effects are fantastic, but the fact that he did them didn't have you know, another person. Like the guy pulled off, you know, a one in a million, you know, low budget, really. And Art the Clown is the best character I've seen come down the pike in a long time. That is I think he's really movie. creepy and really interesting. And I know they're already doing a second one. They they raised they raised their money in like a, like four hours or something because everybody wanted to see another one, and I don't blame them. So that was those are the two horror movies that have jumped out at me in the last few years. Both good ones. What I just wanted to ask your opinion if you have one about where the Children of the Corner franchise has gone since the first one. Well, I mean, for the most part, I think it hasn't gone well. I don't I don't watch them all, but only you know John Franklin wrote and put himself in six six six. At least it was like an original character, you know, and right. he's great at that role so uh couldn't go wrong there but right now there's some high hopes uh, there's a couple of things going on actually there's three things going on number one the original 1984 soundtrack is is, is just came out on vinyl yeah um, through a company called 19 i think called 1984 i was just looking at this this morning but to buy it yeah i was just looking at so, it um, so that's happening and the 4k box set or something supposed to be happening soon so that's so there's all this research and then uh well even, even elijah woods just been talking about wanting to do reboot the franchise because oh. he does a lot of horror now so that's interesting but there's a prequel that's coming out soon that's actually just called children of the corn but i have hopes for it because the producers and the director and stuff are are you know notable so makes me think they had a budget makes me think they're going to do something good so that one is the first one in a while that i'm like maybe this will really really reboot the franchise but incredible there's been like eight or nine now right including a sci-fi one and yeah uh but now we're now we're to the prequel it's uh it just it just keeps going you can't mention children of the corn without mentioning that soundtrack it's nice level it's good stuff i agree mm -hmm. i agree matter of fact when we were scaring that guy there were girls up in the balcony going ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> setting a tone you know <laughs> Angelique, what do you have for Mr. Gaines before we cut him loose here for the afternoon? I really just have my my favorite question. So I like to ask this of all of our guests. What is your go-to movie snack? What's that one thing you just have to have to munch on to make your movie watching experience perfect? Oh, a movie snack. For me, uh, I guess I would have to say Red Vines. No, that's not just because I watch a movie, but because on sets, for some reason, they always have Red Vines, and I don't know why. No one's ever been explained why. And Crafty, if you don't have a box, a big box of you know, the giant plastic thing of Red Vines, you're not on a movie set. You know, and I, 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 have, I eat them because it sort of like reminds me I'm working. I, I, that sounds strange, but it's true. To me, a breakfast burrito in the morning and Red Vines are the two things I know I'm on a movie working. Now, do you make the straw out of them and, and sip your Coke or, or do you just eat them whole? Uh, I eat them. I eat them. But like I eat them. I just snack them all day. It's like the sugar fix to keep me going. There's something about when you're on a movie set and your creative juices are flowing where you feel like you're burning calories at like twice the speed. I can't explain. I don't know if anybody else has that experience. But that's my experience. I I I I have to keep snacking because it's just like I feel like I'm burning like the just burning the candle on both ends. Courtney, before we cut you loose here for the afternoon, where, what else do you have on the horizon coming up? Oh yeah, good. Thank you because I do have a bunch of stuff. So it's like it's all it's like you know everything stopped because of COVID. Now they're all coming out. So right. Queen Bees just came out a few weeks ago, and like I said, I got to work with Ellen Bernstein, Anne Margaret, Jane Curtin, and Loretta Devine in a scene. That was an amazing, fantastic experience. A horror movie I did called Await the Dawn just came out on Amazon Prime. And that's got uh, Vernon Wells does a little thing in it. I do a little thing in it. D. Wallace is in it. So it's got some good people. Yesterday, I don't know when this is coming out, but July 13th, an independent movie I did during COVID called, called River, which is a psychological sci-fi thriller, came out. And it, 
pretty remarkable that an independent film came out in less than a year. So it tells you it's got a little something going for it. It's a, it's only a five-hander. It's like a small, really small cast. And I play a character named Dr. Glenn, who is the town psychiatrist, owns an antique store, and also good friends with the lead girl who loses her mother. And so he's sort of like, Sarah, he plays, since it's a small piece, he plays many roles in a way in this in this film but uh, it's a it's a it's a different role than you've seen me in very earthy very heartfelt character and I had a nice long covid beard for it so it was interesting <laughs> and then a movie i did uh, even before queen bees called charming the hearts of men just got picked up actually uh gravitas venture picked up three of these four films and i so i thank them because uh they've been kind of the champion of the the little the 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 mid, middle budget film you know right and uh charming the hearts of men is set in the 50s and it's about this woman who grew up a debutante, father passes away, inherits a big house, but finds out she has no money. So she takes a job at my character's restaurant, Mr. Spratt's Diner, <laughs> and she the civil rights is kind of kicking up in the 50s, and she ends up allowing a sit-in to happen that causes this big ruckus that, that ends up, she ends up, this is based on Lucy and a true story, she ends up getting the word women's rights put in the civil rights bill. And it happened in the, you know, it happened in this town, in this little town. She, cause she's a debutante, she knew the governor and could have some sway. And I'm glad it's finally seen the light of day. It's got, it's Kelsey Grammer, Sean Astin. It's got some good people in it. And I think it's, I love doing period pieces. You know, I got a nice little flat top for that one and looking forward to it. So that's coming out August 13th. So all of a sudden just like, boom, 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 boom. That's all these thing. things are coming out. Now, did you do much filming during COVID? I managed to do a little bit. They were very indie films. Uh, you know, we did have protocols, but it, that was the only way it kind of got around the whole thing during the, the initial half of the lockdown where it's still the protocols for big projects are, they're difficult. You know, the protocols are, they're testing me constantly. I did a, uh, the last thing I just did was I did a BET television show, an anthology called Tales. It's 10 episodes a season and they're all different episodes. And I play a real corrupt cops. So I'm looking forward to seeing that, but their protocols were like, you know, really strict. It, it, sometimes it throws off you, it throws your game off a little bit. Like they, you have to wear the plastic visor things when you're not working and it gets me all, got me all claustrophobic. I didn't like it at all. I hate it. I'll wear the mask, but I didn't want to right. wear one of those. Now, do you see some of these protocols sticking around even after things have calmed down quite a bit? Well, I don't know when, when they're going to decide to calm down. It's still They're still doing the protocols right now, but they also want you to have been vaxxed now. So, like, it's if you're not vaxxed, that, that can really work against you getting a job. But even then, they're still testing you. That'll keep you from not having to go to a 14-day, like, if you go to a location, you won't have to, like, lock yourself away for 10 days. But they're testing you like every other day uh, while wow. shooting. So, and that's that for productions to be very, very expensive, you know? Right. Well, Courtney, we're not going to keep you all afternoon here. It's very cool that you got so much stuff coming up. We're looking forward to watching it. And thank you for chilling out with us for an hour. I got great. I, I hope I, I think I have another one. I hope I didn't kill my whole time here. I'm late to the next one. But thank you guys. It was great talking to you. And uh, we'll, we'll see you again. All right. We'll be in touch, my friend. You have a good day. All right. Welcome to the night. You think you know Night Demon? Then the Night Demon Heavy Metal Podcast is for you. Step into the darkness as we peel back the curtain to give you an unprecedented, all-access look into the mind and the heart of the demon. We're talking band history, song analysis, studio anecdotes, stories from the road. It's everything a diehard Night Demon fan could want and more. This is the only place to learn the inside scoop, the deep dive trivia, the untold tales from the band members themselves and those closest to the Night Demon story. Need more? The sacred Night Demon crypt will be pried open to reveal demo recordings that have never before seen the light of day. All with in-depth commentary by the band and the people who were there for the writing and recording process. This is a gold mine, a treasure trove of all things Night Demon. Head over to nightdemon.net or wherever you listen to podcasts.